Welcome to Leadership Web, a podcast series from the University of Arkansas that exposes listeners to a wide range of perspectives on leadership. Through interviews with current leaders, Leadership Web strives to provide tools for you to either begin building your own or continue improving your existing leadership framework. We believe that there is no one single path to successful leadership, but that we can all learn from each other on our own leadership journeys. Today we are joined by Mr. Donnie Smith, former Chief Executive Officer of Tyson Foods. His top five values are integrity, courage, humility, service, and authenticity. Just delighted today that we have Donnie Smith with us and this is going to be a little different because Donnie does not have real connections to the University of Arkansas. He's he's one of those Rocky Tops. He came right out of Tennessee and I mean he bleeds Tennessee orange. And while he hadn't been saying very much about football this year, you can just tell that with basketball it's now his sport because they've got a great team this year. But we're delighted to have you with us, Donnie. We've got Andrew Bram is here with uh, John English today, and we asked if you would share with us five values, just as it was in my case, I'm sure with you it was tough to say which are my top five, but I was delighted to see that you identified integrity, courage, humility, service, and authenticity as the five. Now you did say and, and I could tell that you, indeed, this was your CEO experience coming through, that you reserved the right to tweak your list. And I wonder in that time if you in any way want to modify that list. Are you happy to go with those five? No, we'll go with the five. I did give it a lot of thought, though, in prioritizing you know, each, each of the five and trying to take out one or two and add one or two. Mm-hmm. I couldn't think of any of those five I wanted to eject from the list. Or better yet, I couldn't think of any other characteristic that I would want to interject to the yeah. list that would kick one of those five out. So. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a great list of five. It certainly is. And everyone we have interviewed has had integrity on mm-hmm. their list. Frankly, it would be surprising to me mm-hmm if we were interviewing someone for this series who didn't have integrity on the list. But when you think about integrity, if you're choosing someone to be on your team, then you've had an opportunity to observe them and to assess integrity. Mm -hmm. But what if you're interviewing someone for a position how would you go about trying to assess integrity when you're thinking about adding someone to your team that you've never known before other than through the interview process? How would you do that, Donnie? I like to just give, either give scenarios or ask the candidate to talk through a scenario when they've had to make a decision that was either unpopular that went against the grain of the team that they were on. In other words, they had a dissenting view and that sort of thing. And really what I'm looking for is, are they willing to be different at all costs? Right? Not, I'm going to be different yeah. as a rebel. That's not what I'm talking about. But if you have a dissenting point of view or a different way to look at a situation, or it's just, no, I'm not going to do that. I can't go along with that. That violates you know, what I think is right and true. I want to I want to hear about situations where they've been put to the test and where they've put it on the line. I've got a few of those stories of my own, and I'm sure everybody does that's yeah. been been around the block a few times. I, it doesn't take long for a sharp candidate to understand where you're going with that line yeah. of questioning, and usually my experience is they'll sort of help you along the way get a feel for whether or not they're a, they're a person of integrity that's willing to risk it all for what they think's right. That's the challenge of speaking truth to power it is. in a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But having been with you before, I know that uh, early in your career, you had a, a situation in which you were faced with something like that. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how comfortable you would be in going into any of the specifics, but I think that 
for the students who are listening to this, it would be useful to put a little meat on that bone, if you would. Sure. Them. I was a young manager, probably 24, 25 years old, walked into a situation in, a, in the group I was managing at the time where they were actually doing something that was illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, not very many people knew about it, yeah. but they, they were doing something that was illegal. Found out about it, put an immediate stop to it, and then there was sort of this recognition, well, you can't do that. We've been doing this for a long time. They're going to fire you because this is just the way we do things. And, you know, my response was, look, I can go find another job, but I can't go find another integrity. Mm-hmm. And this is wrong, and we stopped it right now. Yeah. It went up the ladder, and then as it came back down, it was sort of, well, let's give the young guy a test. And, you know, if we stop doing this and things don't go bad, then, you know, we'll keep him along. And if not, then we'll have to make a tougher call. And I let him know real quick, I wasn't in a test. You know, I just wasn't going to compromise what I knew to be right. And the yeah. law is the law. We're going to do the right thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and part of what we tried to do when the senior team, you know, sat down in all of our chairs at Tyson was to make sure that we led with integrity and that we, you know, our common phrase was we only need one reason to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And that's because it's the right thing. Yep. We'll accept whatever consequences come with that. Mm-hmm. I think that type of decision is honored. And I don't regret it a bit. And interesting to note, if you want to put factors to this, from the time I sat down in the chair to the time I retired, our legal reserves went down by 70%. Wow. Now, we were had to clean up a lot of stuff from years earlier, right? Yeah. But not adding to the pile is yeah. a big part of getting the pile to shrink, right? Exactly. And so we added very, very few cases and solved a lot of things that had been lingering for a long time. And I'm pretty proud, you know, that's a, that's not a stat a lot of CEOs are ever gonna use, but I'm pretty proud of that because yeah. it speaks to our integrity as a company. Yeah. Well, going right along with what you did there gets to your second point, which was courage. Mm. Because it took courage for you to model integrity mm. at that point. But there have been other instances in which you've had to draw upon that value of courage that wasn't related to integrity. Mm. It was related to, I think this is the right direction to take, or we need to make this change. Would you share some examples of that? Yeah, I'll give you a case in point. At uh, one point in our past, we were going through a big ERP situation. Mm-hmm. And the folks that were leading the problem, I was a subject matter expert at the time in supply chain management. And the folks that were leading the project wanted to do a big bang implementation. In other words, you just turn off the current system switch and turn on the new switch and flip everything over to the the new system. And I just was horribly uncomfortable with that. Two, three, four years earlier, one of the chocolate companies, I can't remember which one it was, but they had had a horrible Halloween based on a big bang approach and we just weren't at the position at that time that our business could could get through all that so everybody went around the table kind of had you know a little bit to say and so then sort of went around the table about what would you do and it started to my left and went all the way around the table and and the you know most of the answers were well these are the experts if they think that's what we need to do we probably need to do that so, you know, yes, 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 yes to me. And I went, no, we do not need to do this. This is crazy. If it goes wrong, what, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so, as you can well imagine, that pretty much ended the meeting. Uh, thank God we decided not to do the big bang. Yes. And uh, good or bad, probably six months later, I was running that project. So yeah. uh, learned a lot during that time. Uh, but I'll tell you, it got repeated. So I remember when I was the CEO around my table, and we had a very open meeting structure, and you know most people would call our meetings arguments, but we got everything on the table, and nobody took anything personal. It was just all about we need perspective. And so there was a healthcare issue that we were talking about, and I didn't really have a particularly strong point of view. Uh, I always got input, but very seldom did I take a vote. And so I said, look guys, 
we're going to put this to the vote. Started my left, round the table. Yes, 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 yes. And after 10 yeses, the guy to my right went, no, I disagree. That takes a lot of courage yeah. to be, you know, to, to know what the vote is and still say, I disagree. But he added, I'm a team player. Mm-hmm. And I'm on this team, and if that's what this team wants to do, I'm all in. It's just, if it's my decision, I wouldn't do that. I think that leadership courage, to be willing to be that voice mm-hmm. that's willing to say, no, I disagree, or yes, I think we should do this, or whatever, I think that's really important to the lifeblood of a company. Yeah. It's interesting that in your response to this value of courage, you threw a couple of terms out there that uh, very interesting. You said supply chain and you said ERP. That wasn't your educational background, as I recall. It seems to me that you majored in, in ag over at UT, did you not? I did. I was an animal science major. I, I went to school to be a pre-vet. Turns out you need really good grades to do that. So <laughs> I disqualified myself fairly early in the process. Uh, and got an animal science degree and went to work for Tyson right out of school, the only yeah. company I've ever worked for. But as I've looked at your your journey through Tyson, you didn't go up the mountain just in a straight line. You mm-hmm. went around the mountain and around. You Was there any area of Tyson's business that you hadn't put your toe into the water on and it had responsibility for? I didn't spend a whole lot of time in the processing plants. Ah. Uh, I was... Always connected either to live production before they you know mm-hmm. process the chicken mm-hmm. or supply chain after the product's yeah. completed. So I spent a lot of time in the plants working through either processing issues or logistics is- issues, that sort of thing. So I kind of knew what was going on there or what needed to go on there, but I never had any hands-on experience. But other than that, it's pretty much it. Fairly circuitous route through Dyson. Yeah, but I, I cannot <laughs> imagine, though, at what point in your career did you get your first computer? I was here. I came to Springdale. Matter of fact, my first day in Springdale was October the 17th or 19th of 1987. It was Black Monday. Huh. I called my wife at the end of the day and I said, Honey, no need to pack. This isn't going to take long. I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 30-something years later, right? Uh, but yeah, and, and when I sat down in commodity purchasing was the first time I, I was actually used a personal computer, and yeah. we used the old five-and-a-quarter-inch yeah. floppies, oh, yes. right? Oh, and yes. then we thought we were big time yeah. when we went to three-and-a-quarter-inch, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> inserts, right? Absolutely. So, yeah. My, my, my. And now I've got more I've got more computer power in my pocket right now than I had in oh, front of me absolutely. that day. By by a huge exponent, yeah, right? Probably as much as the corporation. Yeah, probably so. <laughs> it's but it's interesting. You go into a, a job that you've had no experience in, you've had no educational preparation for. How could you function as a leader of that group? How'd you approach that? Interesting. Let's go back a little bit to integrity and why I think integrity matters so much. Covey wrote a book, Business Moves at the Speed of Trust, hmm. or that's the premise of the book anyway. Yeah. Patrick Lencioni, who I love to read, yeah. in Five Dysfunctions of a Team, his mm-hmm. pyramid starts with trust. Yes. And so, and I think that's why integrity is so important, mm-hmm. is because it, it's the foundation of trust. People will trust a person of integrity, and that's why we're so, frustrated today when we see leaders violate that integrity because we can't trust them from that point forward. Anyway, so with that, a little bit of background. What I want to do going into a group is I want to try to build trust as as fast as I can. And I think one of the ways you do that is you listen to other people's ideas. So when I would go into any new group, I would ask three questions. What are we good at? In other words, what are our strengths? What are we not good at? In other words, what are our weaknesses? And if you were king or queen for a day, what would you do? And that last question is meant to say, okay, if they would picked you instead of me, what would you be doing today instead of what I'm doing? But what it says is, I trust you to tell me what our strengths are. I trust you to tell me what our weaknesses are. And I trust you to tell me what to do. How would you fix it? 
And, and if you will voluntarily give them your trust, I trust you to give me this critical information. I remember several groups, I looked at them and the answers I was getting back didn't make a whole lot of sense to me coming in from the outside. But I said, is this right? Yes, these are our strengths. Is this right? Yes, these are our weaknesses. And is this really what y'all think we ought to do? Yep, that's what we think we ought to do. Okay, let's go do it. <laughs> and, you know, and, and you're, you're saying, okay, I trust y'all. Oh, I hope you paid attention because this is really serious stuff. And invariably, the answer's in the room. I mean, who wants to come to work every day and be miserable and screw up everything they touch? Mm -hmm. Nobody. Everybody wants to be successful at what they do. Mm -hmm. But a lot of us come into work environments where you're not organized right, the culture's bad, you're not empowered, uh, you're not resourced, the strategy's bad, you know, those sort of, So there's a lot of reasons why I come to work every day and I can't be successful. And so to have a boss come in and say, hey, look, I'll listen to y'all. Tell me how to fix this thing and put you in a great environment that you want you can be successful in. And then, you know what? I'll listen to you. I'll pin my ears back and I'll lead you to go do all those things. And it, I tell you, John, I don't know how many times I did it. It never failed. Yeah. The answer is always in that room. But you know, that approach that you took, I think plays right into your third value, which is humility. Mm. You didn't come into it saying, I know all the answers. You came into it with, I've got some questions. Yeah. Humility, it seems to me, has played a big role in your life. Mm. Now, you look at all of the, the things that the world counts as things to strive for, to the rewards. It'd be really easy for someone to come along and think, hey, I'm the best thing that ever came around. How do you attribute your humility? Where did this come from? Honestly, I think it's based in my faith. I mean, uh, I know where my power comes from. I know, I know my source of everything, and that's God. And as I look at you know, last night, for example, great athletic display in the college football national championship. And, and if you look at both of those teams, and I look at businesses and, as a team, both had incredibly talented quarterbacks. But let's just say that you had the center and a quarterback against the opponent. How good a game is that quarterback going to have? Not much. He's going to be staring through his ear hole most of the night. Yeah. It's those front five mm -hmm. that give him the time he needs to make those long, awesome passes or you know whatever the case may be. And so, as a you know, even as a CEO or as anybody, you're, you're a member of a team. So on January the fourth of 2017, I didn't show up for work, and everything happened. Now, if on January the fourth of 2017 none of the animals showed up, we had a serious problem. Mm -hmm. So who's more important, me or the animals? Mm -hmm. Right? That kind of puts it in perspective, right? Mm -hmm. If all the people in plants just didn't show up one day, mm -hmm. oh my goodness, if all the sales folks didn't make a call one day. Mm -hmm. you know? And so if you really look at what it takes to run a business, you begin to see, look, I have a role, but this business isn't defined by whoever you are, Donnie Smith or whoever, you know, the, the CEO, the leader, or whoever it is, any department, any group, any anything, any organization is not defined. Now, it's influenced by the leader. I think leadership has enormous influence. I think it's incredibly important, but that's not what defines the organization. And I think, by the way, I think CEOs get way too much credit for the good stuff that happens in a company, and I think they get way too much blame for the bad stuff that happens mm -hmm. in the company. But I've been able to be humble just because I know me, Mm -hmm. And I've been fortunate to be surrounded by an awesome team that are just incredible and they work very well together selflessly. Mm -hmm. And there's just no end to what a team can accomplish as long as they don't care who gets the credit. I don't know who said that originally. I know Reagan kept that quote on his desk because Buddy Ray, my mentor, had it on his desk and he made sure it was on my desk. Mm -hmm. it's, just a, it's just a principle. Stay humble, you know, and do everything together as a team. Now, in defining humility, we need to be careful that we define it as meek, 
i.e. power under control, not being a doormat. People don't want to. People don't want to work for a doormat. Listen, you can't have a backbone if your boss don't have your back. Yeah. Right. And so you need a boss that's got your back. He's gonna take. He's gonna take care of you. Those kinds of things. And so you need a strong, confident boss. But you just need a confident boss that's humble, and is not out for their own good or you know seeking their self interest and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because that plays right into your next one, which is that of service. Mm. Uh, Servant leadership is what you really have described here. At what point in your career did that become top of mind for you, that you were there to serve others, Mm. regardless of what your title might have been? Yeah, as I look at it, it was in the early part of the 2000s before... I really saw the impact of the servant leadership style mm-hmm. of leadership. But if I go all the way back to the beginning days in the 80s, so yep. 20 years prior, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a young serviceman. They don't really teach you how to be a serviceman. The serviceman yeah. goes around and talks to the growers about mm-hmm. how to do as good a job as they can growing the chickens. But they don't really teach that in college. And so you get a little bit of training. But it, at the you know back in '80, it was pretty much here's your route, here's the keys to your truck, good luck. And so um, I would talk to my growers about what's a good serviceman look like. You know what? How, how can I help you? My job is to help you. How can I help you? Mm-hmm. And they taught me pretty quickly. What we need is somebody that will advocate for us and listen to us. Yes, hold us accountable, but that will help us. Mm-hmm. And so in those early early years. I sort of developed this role of, look, they probably call it service man or person for a reason. Mm-hmm. Why don't I serve them? And why don't I serve them well? If they, need, if they need some coaching, I'll coach them. If they need somebody to help show them how to fix a brooder, I'll figure out how to help them fix a brooder too. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the genesis of this whole service mentality, just straight out of college. And, and I can't think of a role where it didn't serve me well. And I can tell you, when you turn 115, 20,000 people loose with the idea that it's not about me, it's about what I can do to help those that are around me, those on my team and my customers be successful, it is amazing what you can accomplish. But you know, I think that uh, a lot of your success not only came from the combination of integrity, courage, humility, and service, but you put in the hours too. You worked hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, your dad gave you some advice that I think uh, I wish that all of my students had been given that advice. Maybe they were, but they didn't seem to follow it the way you did. Would you mind sharing with our listeners the advice your dad gave Yeah, dad, dad, he was born in the Depression. I think he was born in thirty. And his philosophy of life and work was pretty simple. If you get up before everybody else, and you get to work before everybody else, and you work harder than everybody else, and you stay later than everybody else, eventually you'll be everybody else's boss. Yeah. And 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 that's what that's what he taught me. Yeah. And, and so a work ethic, you know. And I, and hey, look, I, I don't know that my transcript's still available. It's probably on microfiche somewhere, but. <laughs> But if you went back and look at my transcript, you're probably not going to be overly impressed. <laughs> and I always figured, look, there's a lot of people that will outsmart me and maybe outthink me. But the one thing I can control is to make sure nobody ever outworks me. Yeah. And so I tried to make up, if you will, for a lot of my deficiencies just by pure effort. I remember we were on a high yield road show this was back in early part of 2009 for your listeners let me just say we really needed this event to be successful mm-hmm. and so it was me and dennis leatherby and jim lochner uh dennis just pat just lost dennis a few months ago um great friend of mine wonderful cfo and and he implored on us how important this trip was anyway so i sit down on the plane and we're on a 10-day road show. I don't know how many contacts we made, but we made a bunch. And we were trying to sell some high-yield bonds. 
And I sit down in the back of that plane with a banker and I'm gonna round it down to a million questions. <laughs> but so I, you know, I sit down on the plane with this guy and I said, okay, what's a bond? <laughs> I might need a drink for this flight, you know? And so it's just over and over, just I ask him, and, and when I got through 10, 10 days, 12 days later, and by the way, we had 100% participation in that, in that wow. bond. Deal. So, but when I got out of that plane, when I finally went home, I had a master's degree in finance mm -hmm. from from that ten day trip, mm -hmm. and I understood the importance of the balance sheet, the importance of cash flow, how it related to the income statement, the importance of capital, you know, acquisition, mm -hmm. the importance of capital allocation, all those things, and and it was just like, okay, I get ten days to learn this, and this is going to be important to our future as a company. I need to know this. And honestly, there's a couple of nights there when the guy really wanted to go to bed, but no, 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 I got, we got to go through one more thing. And I kept him up late every night, but it was important. And I worked hard to understand finance. Cause you know, when you come up through operations, you understand how important, you know, the X's and the O's are maybe, or, or better yet, you understand how the execution of each play is. But knowing how to draw out the plays and what do we need to do to heal the balance sheet? What do we need to do to put ourselves in a position to be able to make that acquisition? Those kinds of things. That's the real key that a CEO needs to bring to the table. I learned to do that on that 10-day trip. Didn't get a whole lot of sleep, but I got a great education. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting that uh, you're on the the board at the University of Tennessee, you probably could do something about that transcript. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is what it is. Yeah. I just that think gets back to integrity. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure that you have also observed there's a real difference in leading a business than in leading a university. No doubt. You didn't have people fussing at you about the football team or all those other kinds of things that now, uh, go on there. Yeah, I think there are some principles that are applicable, but mm -hmm. I also think you have to be very careful not to industrialize a university. Yeah. The mission's different. Mm -hmm. uh, now, there are great principles in business that, that can be applied, but I think you have to filter those through the mission of the organization and what are we trying to accomplish yeah. and that sort of thing to make sure that you don't stifle the, the creativity that's so important. You know, as a, as a person in industry, man, I want all applied research. Yeah. It's that basic research that often unlocks some key thought that may lead to an applied research breakthrough mm -hmm. a decade from now yeah. that might make your company a ton of money. So you, you have to respect the value of that knowledge and just creating knowledge. It's, it's, it's different, it's similar, but you gotta be careful to respect the, yeah. the differences. Well, in fact, there's been a, I'd say a, a revolution, I started to use the word evolution, but I think a revolution in the way people think about a business organization. I was in business before I came into academia and it didn't take me long to realize that the university president or the chancellor is not sitting at the top of a organization chart but rather sitting at the bottom mm -hmm. of the organization chart. At the top of the organization chart are the faculty. Mm -hmm. And you were in some way able to get that message across at Tyson and I thought you did it in a very interesting way uh, drawing on the yeah. metaphor of a peach tree. I wonder if you would mind just sharing that with us. Yes, as you look at practically every organizational structure, it's shaped like a pyramid, right? Mm -hmm. And you've got the CEO at the top and then the EVPs and SVPs and mm -hmm. VP wannabes mm -hmm. and then the directors and managers and mm -hmm. then at the bottom of the pyramid are the workers. And, you know, if you asked the worker in any typical organization, you know, how you doing? Do you have what you need? The answer is going to be, are you kidding me? No, you know, I'm under-resourced, I'm overworked, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I like to look at, you know, there's some people that turn the pyramid upside down. That's mm -hmm. pretty unstable. I'm not going to work in a 
pyramid sitting on its peak. I'm just, yeah. I'm not going to be underneath that thing. That's yeah. just not safe. I ain't doing it. Yeah. But if you think about a peach tree, right? And, and you got the root structure, the trunk, the branches, and the trees, and then, thank God, the peaches. And you try to draw a parallel. The peaches on the peach tree are the workers on the bottom of the pyramid. And the pyramid structure, they've got all this ego. You know, that, that whole structure is just dr driven by fear and pride. People, people look, at the look at the organizational structure and they think that informs a leadership model. Well, I'm up here, so I'm more important than you down there. Yeah. Couldn't be further from the truth. If you look at a peach tree, the leadership is actually the support function so that the peaches can do their thing. If you go up to any peach on a peach tree and ask them, what do you need? They're going to universally answer the same way. Nothing. I got everything I need. Sunshine, nutrients, moisture. I can do my photosynthetic thing and I'll taste great in about two more months. You go into any organization and ask any worker, what do you need? What's the chance you're going to hear nothing? Zero. <laughs> nothing, right? And, 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 and so that's the difference. And as a CEO, kind of at the base of the tree, my job was to, was to bring in resources, whether it's capital or human resources, that sort of thing, just like the root structure. You provide stability as the trunk of the tree. You provide direction. If the tree's leaning right, the peaches are going to be on the right. If the trunk's leaning left, the peaches are going to be on the left. And so, and so providing resources, stability, and direction, well, that's really the function of a CEO. And, and so I just saw my job as trying to enable those peaches to be able to go to work every day and do their thing with minimal instruction. I know why I'm here. I know how I, my job fits in. I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm very well resourced to do it, and I'm in a good culture. The culture, I think, is the soil that that peach tree grows in, that leadership tree grows in, and I'm in a good culture. I want to come to work every day because I'm making great food, and I'm making a difference, and I, I like being here. That was, the, that was the culture and the leadership style that we modeled for our folks. And I tell you, people embraced it, and I think the results speak for themselves. Yeah. Well, you used a very important term there about culture of an mm -hmm. organization. Many years ago, a couple of faculty members over at Vanderbilt uh, uh, named Deal and Kennedy wrote a book called Corporate Cultures. Mm -hmm. And in it, they talked about if you wanted to change the culture of an organization, whether it was in business, whether it was in a university and in uh, government, two things you have to keep in mind. It takes a long time mm -hmm. and it's very expensive. And underlying all of that is in order to get it to change, you've got to address the whiffum factor, what's in it for me. Mm -hmm. And yet, during your time at Tyson, from an outside perspective, it seemed to me the culture changed. You're able to pull that off. How did you do that, Donnie? So I agree with those guys about the time. I don't know the research. I disagree with them about it's very expensive. Yeah. I think there's a couple of things that are critical, though, when, when orchestrating organizational change. One, you have to clearly define your culture. Uh, there's a guy, I think his name's Tony Shea, Zappos Shoes, mm -hmm. he wrote a great little book on culture and they defined it by 10 terms. And I think it's important for you to define your cu culture. Every company, you know, you're going to have a mission statement, a vision statement, and maybe core values and, and that sort of thing. And if you read through all of that, typically you kind of get a warm and fuzzy, but you don't always get direction. Mm -hmm. right? So what I wanted to do was clearly define the culture which I define as how stuff gets done around here mm -hmm. and, and do it in a way that was easy for everybody to understand. I'll give you a couple of three tenets. Number one, a tenet was we care about each other. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of ways to show you care and there's a lot of ways to show you don't care. Mm -hmm. And so we got to have open conversations about did that behavior show that you cared about your people or not? If it didn't, don't do it again. If it did, keep doing it. Second one, uh, do what you say you're going to do. It's pretty easy to you know, be at the quarterly meeting and have a business unit head giving a report about whether or not they did what they said they were going to do. Okay, that's pretty easy to define. Mm -hmm. uh, we had another one, say it in a room. 
this one is about, you know, we've all been in that meeting where there's this issue. It's the, you know, 60,000 pound gorilla in the room, yeah. right? And we talk, we go around and we talk about for an hour, have a meeting for an hour, waste everybody's time. And then we leave and we go out in the hall and the real meeting starts. Well, he's the dumbest thing. That's a stupid, this is never going to work, blah, blah, blah. The real meeting starts, right? And so I just thought, wouldn't it be more efficient to have that meeting in the room? Why don't we just, as leaders, create an environment where people can disagree with us and just say it in the room? Then we'd have all the perspective we need and we can make a better choice. That was a little bit hard to do. It takes, mm -hmm. takes a little runway. Yeah. But I knew we were going to do it. We were in a meeting. We had a very difficult decision about closing down a business. And I had the whole retail team in the room. And there was this one guy. And I knew where he stood. <laughs> Everybody knew where he stood, right? Um, we met for an hour, hour and a half, talking about all kinds of issues, customer issues, and which customers would get mad, and how we would deal with that, and what it would do to the supply chain, and how would we just, you know, people's jobs were gonna be disrupted, how could we place them in other places, all that kind of stuff. All this stuff. Guy never said a word. Hmm. Sat in the whole meeting just like a knot on a log. Well, meeting ended, we made the call. He disagreed with the call, obviously, because we made a meeting to close the business down. Walked out, and I was standing there at the front of the room and not too far from the door though, got out the door and he wasn't three steps down the hall when he tuned up. Well, I knew it, blah, blah. And, but the people around him said, no, 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 no. You had your chance. Our culture says, say it in the room. You had your chance to speak your piece and you chose not to. You sat there like a knot on a log. We don't care about what you think anymore because you abdicated your responsibility to the team. We made a call, we're going with it. And I, look, I thought to myself, we win. This is going to work. Because the team was now policing itself. We have a cultural tenant set in the room. You didn't do that. No, you don't, you don't get to keep disrupting the team. And so it went on like that. But we made it very clear, crystal clear, what was good behavior and what was bad behavior. And once we did that, we sort of gave everybody a whistle. And everybody could be the deputy and everybody could call bad behavior. Now, you know, some people did it on the 1-800 hotline. Some people just did it. You know, so we, we really started that in my retail year, which was uh, 08. And I left in 17. So nine years down, or left in 16. So eight years down the path. Um, my last year, I was doing, we kind of had surveyitis. You know, you, yeah. you know, you get, you oh, know. Yeah. Every, every flight you take or every hotel you stay in, you're going to get a, yeah. right? So anyway, kind of had surveyitis, so I had to be real careful. But what I would do is ask a question that would relate back to a cultural tenets. For example, uh, if you say you care about people, then you should listen to them. And so my question would be, do you feel listened to by your peers and your supervisor? And I'd throw that out there on the web and I'd get the responses. And we were at about 75% top two box at the end. So I would tell you that after eight long years of constantly preaching our cultural tenets, we had about 75% acceptance. Mm -hmm. But I would not quit preaching just because not everybody bought in. I keep going because it matters to the people out there that have to get the work done every day. Yeah, it's something you just have to Keep pushing, yeah. pushing, pushing. Yep. That brings us to the fifth one, which is authenticity. Yeah. And I've thought about that a lot because on the one hand, authenticity could be thought of as transparent, mm -hmm. but that's not really what you mean. Because we've talked about this uh, before, Donnie. You can't just wear your feelings on your sleeve, but at the same time, you need to be authentic. Mm -hmm. Share a little about that. Yeah, you? so I think authenticity embodies transparency. I think mm -hmm. you're tra if you're authentic, you're going to be a pretty transparent mm -hmm. person. Mm -hmm. But there again, you got to be real careful to remain true to yourself and who you are. You know, I often have people say, oh man, I don't, I don't understand how you don't get in trouble about your faith in the workplace. Mm -hmm. I'm just authentic. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, people don't mind people that are authentically them. They hate hypocrites. Yeah. And I don't blame them. Mm -hmm. But they don't mind people that are authentic if, if you back it up with the way you live every day, the way you yeah. work, the way you talk, the way you treat people, mm -hmm. all that. So you got to bear in mind as a servant leader, what does that organization need? Quick story. So 
We were going through a particularly rough period of time, hadn't been CEO long, February, March 2010, early days. And, you know, I, I, I didn't think anything about it, but I went over to Tower 2 to talk to some folks, and I came back to my office. And I hadn't been in my office for four or five minutes before one of my, my, my folks walked in my office, and he said, what is wrong with you? I said, what are you talking about? He said, I just had two people come into my office and tell me you're selling the company. Are you selling the company? I said, what are you talking about? I hadn't even been a CEO four months yet. What are you talking about? He said, look, they passed you. Evidently, you were going back to your office and they were going to Tower 2 and you passed them and you didn't say a word to them. And you are, you're always saying, hi, how you doing, whatever. And, and you scared them to death. And I said, I didn't think anything about it. He said, you don't get to not think anything about it. He said, listen, regardless of what's going on around you, we need a confident leader. So when you walk through those doors, you screw on a smile. We need that. And you owe us that. And you know what? I never forgot that. Yeah. And for the next, thank God it happened in the first two or three months because I got to live it out for 6.7 years. But obviously not everything was always going well. But when people saw their leader, he cared more about them than he did about what was going on in his life or, or that sort of thing because they're what matters. They are the peaches. They are why the tree exists, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and I'm not going to change. I've had coaching along the way. You know, you need to do this differently or you need to do that differently. But it doesn't feel authentic to me. And I'm willing to, you know... Now, you you got to watch the stubborn streak, which I have a bit of one. But I think once you kind of decide who you are and whose you are and what your purpose is and, and what your principles are, then you need to stay true to that. And when people ask you to compromise that for one reason or the other, that needs to be a pretty easy no. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's the authentic part is just you are who you are. And, and you're committed to be you, and you're not going to let your world, your, your, your job, money, any of that change who you are. But, but again, people need to see the captain. On, when, when, the storm gale, when the storm winds are, are howling and waves are crashing over the bow of the boat at sea, the people in the boat need to see the captain up on the front of the boat with his arm on the rail, smoking a cigar, going, keep rowing, it's fine, we got this. Right? Mm-hmm. They need that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not talking about fake it till you make it. I'm talking about being a humble, confident leader that's going to guide your people to win the games that, that they can win. So there is balance. Yep. But I, I, don't, I don't view that I ever sacrificed who I was by serving my people with what they needed. After all, I'm a servant leader. My job is to, is to give them what they need to be successful, and confidence is part of that formula. I think the real test of authenticity is, are you the same person regardless of where you are? Yeah. Are you a different person in the office than you are at home, than you are at church, or you are? As long as you are just you. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's been one of your real strengths yeah there's no church donnie and work donnie yeah. and see it walmart donnie or what yeah. that, that, there's just donnie yeah bless his heart yeah <laughs> well, indeed and we appreciate so much you sharing time with us and wonder if ma'am you have yeah. any yeah, yeah I, I do um so i've got one that's kind of on the fringe here that i just want you to because it have you saw me yesterday andrew deploy the don't do list yeah and can you talk a little about the don't do list? I mean, yeah. You saw me do it with Carl Schubert. It is critical for leaders, particularly servant leaders, to be focused on what they're supposed to be doing, right? To be, you, you, be very purposeful about what they're doing. But you have to be very intentional. And so there was a, there was a time back in our past, I won't go into a whole lot of detail, but a guy calls me early in my you know, days. I think I was, in, uh, I was over poaching prepared food time, foods in the early 2009. Things weren't going well at all. And this guy called me and he was griping about uh, our sales folks who were, had, had bought the wrong calendar. And I, I just made the point, look, I don't care about the calendar. 
Well, yeah, you have to care. No, I don't. Probably would have done it differently today, but I hung up on him. I said, no, I don't care about the calendar. Because if you get drug into caring about everything people want you to care about, your to-do list will be the length of a roll of paper towels, right? Mm-hmm. And so you've got a, you know, the old the old story about the big rocks, you know, the jug yes. and the big rocks and the pebbles and sand. You got to figure out what your big rocks are, and you got to stay focused on them. And I've got a to-don't list. When I was when I was six, I didn't care about the calendar. I didn't care about the carpet. I didn't care about ceiling tiles. I didn't care about the cafeteria. There's just a lot of things I didn't care about. Other people cared about them, but not me. I had to care about strategy, execution, how we doing versus plan, you know, the, the, keeping the team together, those kinds of things. And so to, to, you, to your point, John, it's important that you are in control of your calendar. I think in Covey's seven habits, I think that's habit number three. If I remember, if I remember the book right, that's chapter number three. And it's, it's critical. It's yeah. And then the other question too, Donnie, because um, it was a conversation. It was the uh, commencement speakers' dinner where Eli was the dean, and you and I were talking. And I think it ties John these core values that Donnie so clearly described is interlaced through this whole thing is love. Mm. And and can you expound on that? Because that that was one of those aha moments mm. that I think. Our students might appreciate that's not something to be fearful of. Yeah. Uh, you don't hear the word love used a lot. Uh, there's a good little book, by the way, Love Works, written by uh, the guy that was the CEO of Hirschman Family Entertainment. Uh, Mamby is his name. Great little book. So I want to I go in two different places. Number one, if you love your kids and all parents do, and you see your kids doing something that's wrong or not, something is even not helpful, won't you interject yourself to say, no, don't do that. that. That's not good behavior. That won't help you. That won't expedite your journey. But when you get into the workplace, let me, let me give you an example. So here's a hot shot, fresh out of college, sharp kid. She is awesome. And you just know she's going to be in your group for probably 18 months or so, but she's sharp and somebody's going to snap her up and take her to you know, the next level up or whatever. And so you get to the annual review nine, ten months later, whatever, and you've got a lot of good stuff to say, but you, there's just one little thing about her that just bugs the stew out of you. But you think to yourself, you know what? Nah, she's sharp. She's not going to be mine anyway, so I'm, just, I'm not going to hurt her feelings. I'll just let it go. So sure enough, 18 months later, it's a new job, does a great job, everything's good. And then that, that manager says, um, you know, there's just this one little thing. just bugs the stew out of me. But you know what? I don't want to hurt her feelings. She'll probably be gone in a few months anyway. I'm going to let it go. And on and on. And then she becomes a director. And then this little behavior that was just bugging the stew out of people has all of a sudden become a leadership derailer because it's just grown and grown and grown and grown. And she gets to be a director and something happens and this behavior expresses itself and it's going, you know, look, I can't live with this. And it may end in a termination, it may end in a demotion, it may end in a lot of bad ways. And I look at that, yeah, it's tough times, but whose fault really is that? You know, is it the VP's fault that had to demote or, or move or fire or direct no it's that first lazy mm-hmm. unthoughtful selfish manager that didn't love her enough to give her a perspective from his or her point of view from several years more of experience it's that manager's fault and it's the second manager's fault for being lazy unthoughtful selfish and self-centered and the next one and the next one and so if we really loved our people number one we wouldn't wait till annual reviews to have an annual review we'd do that along the year but but our our reviews would be very candid about those things you're doing that are expediting your your journey but those things you may be doing that are hindering the speed of your journey and and let me give you at least my perspective on that take it for what it's worth or there's just this behavior I can't live with. You have to change this, that sort of thing. And so to your point, there, there's lots of people 
that, that I'd say today, I see, him, I see him around town today, man, I love you. You know, and people go, that's weird. You know, that's sort of weird. No, it's not. It's natural. And, and if you love your people as much as you should, you'll give them great feedback. You'll pay them right. You'll provide a safe and work environment. You'll give them all the development and instruction they need so they won't be frustrated all day and they know how to do their job. They're skilled to do their job. And you'll take, an in, you'll take a personal interest in them and what makes them tick so you understand better how to motivate them. But so many of us go back to that pyramid structure. We're so enamored by being an SVP or whatever we are, and we think the whole world revolves around us and our title, and all we care about is ourselves. And that selfish, self-centered, prideful, fearful leadership style will not get a company to where it should be over time. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I have just one thing, because you mentioned that. It's, uh, it's difficult for someone who's had the journey you've had that doesn't begin to identify themselves by the title on their business card. Mm -hmm. And uh, when it's over, then what do you do? Mm. Uh, after I had stepped down as chancellor, I took six months uh, to get myself retooled to come back and, and be teaching. And three of my buddies from Georgia Tech came over and we were together over in South Carolina after playing golf. And one of them, John Jarvis, asked me, he said, what do you miss most about it? I said, what? Being chancellor? I said, not anything. I said, all I've been thinking about is what I'm going to be doing in January. I'm trying to get ready for that. I, I don't miss it. And then later on, I got back to John. I said, actually, I was wrong. There were three things I found I really missed. One, I no longer have a restroom adjacent to my office. Uh, number two, when it's snow and ice, I don't have people cleaning out my driveway. And number three, when I want to go to Little Rock, I can't go get on the university plane and have to drive down there. I said, the truth is, it's not anything about the job I miss. What I miss are the people, yes, right. the relationships. Yeah. And he said to me, well, you know, it's interesting because another person in that group at that time who had been my department head and who had been my provost when I was dean at Georgia Tech. He can't separate himself. Mm. That Every day since he stepped down as provost, he calls back to the office to get an update on what's going on mm. from his former admin. And so that's a point I try to make to the students is don't believe mm. that who you are is what your job is. Yeah that you have to know who you are. Yeah. That's being authentic, Donnie. Yeah. That's about integrity and courage and humility and service. It's about authenticity. Yeah. You have really brought a great value to us today and thank you for thank you, sharing with it. us. Yeah. Okay. Thank you all. Thank you for joining Leadership Web today. We hope that you found insight and guidance on leadership tools from this interview. Please join Leadership Web in two weeks as we explore another leader's leadership journey. Also, follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn by searching Leadership Web.